Hi, I'm Amber and we're back with Dermcast TV. Today we're sitting with Dr. Kirby, Associate Professor of Dermatology for Penn State University, and Dr. Clark, Associate Professor of Dermatology for University of Utah School of Medicine. Thank you for sitting with us today and talking. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for having us. So we're doing sort of a different take on this interview today, and we're just going to go through some current topics of research 2019 of dermatology. Let's start with something that we all look at our pathologies and try and determine what's the best thing to do with that dysplastic nevus. What's the recent data say? So there was a recent publication in uh, JAMA Dermatology just this year to help us with that because when you get that report back and it tells you you have a mildly dysplastic nevus with negative margins, it's pretty easy to know that you can monitor the patient. Where it starts to get tricky is when you get moderate or severe dysplasia uh, or when it goes to the margins. And so that's what this new paper addressed was what to do when you have that report, just that report, the, the atypical nevus with a histologic margin that's positive that's moderately atypical. And what this paper tells us is that if you have a patient that's reliable, that's gonna come back for follow-up, that will self-monitor, that even with a positive uh, histologic margin in a moderately dysplastic nevus, it is okay to, to monitor them clinically and not necessarily re-excise every moderately dysplastic nevus with a positive margin. Gives us a lot more leeway to, to work with our patients and make decisions together. Exactly, and that's important to have that conversation with the patient as well and, and give them the information and let them help make the decision too. Definitely. So moving on from that, let's talk about sunscreen. There's some new information about preventative use of sunscreen from a melanoma standpoint. Absolutely. Patients come in all the time saying, well, I've heard sunscreen actually is not good for me. It may increase my risk of skin cancer. And there were some older publications that maybe even suggested that, but they didn't really control for the amount of sunscreen that was used or the amount of time spent outdoors. Um, and this year there was a publication from Australia where they surveyed the majority of the population, really looking at people under 40, people with um, both a history of melanoma and without, and their sunscreen use. And it showed that people who use sunscreen um, had a lower risk of melanoma. People under the age of 40 had a lower risk of first melanoma if they were good sunscreen users than those that weren't. So it really gives us more of that evidence that we know as dermatologists that sunscreen really is helpful in the prevention of melanoma skin cancer. Which leads perfectly into the next topic, providing the fact that some of them haven't used that sunscreen. Now we're talking about actinic keratoses and field treatment of that. What's the newest literature say for what's the best field treatment from an IK standpoint? So it was great that there was a new trial that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine just in 2019, comparing four of the most common field therapies, 5-fluorouracil 5%, PDT, inginol mebutate, and amiquimod 5%. Using fairly standard regimens for those medications, they looked at how often do people maintain 75% reduction in the AK count at three months, and 12 months. And really what helped me from this trial was to know which one of these modalities should I choose? Because a lot of times for my patients, I have more than one possibility. For my office, maybe I don't have the access to some of these things. And if it was the best one, then maybe I need to find that opportunity. But it also reinforced for me that my first choice of things that I use the most, fluorouracil 5%, is still the number one best treatment for maintaining a 75% reduction in actinic keratoses at three months and at 12 months 
compared to those other regimens and treatments. What was the dosing schedule that they used for that? Great question. The fluorouracil 5% was twice daily for four weeks. So this is a pretty hardy regimen and maybe slightly different than how we sometimes use it in our day-to-day practice. I can usually get people through two weeks with some support and convincing. I think that it'll need a little bit of additional support to get our patients to that four-week mark. I actually bring mine back in at two weeks and give them a little cheerleading session That's and try and get idea. them through mm-hmm. the rest of the time. It's a quick appointment, but they appreciate it, I believe. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Moving on from that, new guidelines for hydradenitis suprativa that are actually written down. Talk to us about that. Absolutely. So one of the things that I really enjoy taking care of is hydradenitis suprativa HS. It's sometimes been a real challenge to get medications approved through insurance companies, and they're usually looking for some kind of support in the literature. So the great thing is that just this year, clinical management guidelines were published by the Hydradenitis Superativa Foundation in conjunction with the Canadian HS Foundation. So we now have these really voluminous, which is both good and bad, looks like a lot of paper when you send it off to the insurance company. It covers everything about HS from comorbidity management to interventions or treatments that we can use for patients. We can use these to help guide our treatment of patients, but we can also put them in as references for those letters where we're requesting medications from uh, insurance companies. So you're actually sending that entire document off to the insurance company? I feel like the more I send, the more that happens. It's just if I can overwhelm them with paper and information, (laughs) I think things generally go a little better. That's an excellent pearl and something that I'll take back with me to my practice too. Switching gears one more time, let's talk about bullous pemphigoid. So bullous pemphigoid is a condition that we're not all treating every day, but interestingly, the incidence is increasing, seems to be worldwide. Um, so one of the recent papers this year in the in the literature actually looked at that. It was out of Korea, um, but we're seeing this in, in the U.S. too. These numbers are increasing. Uh, what they found was that there is a new class of diabetes drugs. They're called glyptins. Um, and it seems as though this class of drug is a a new culprit for triggering bolus pemphigoid. Uh, And so drug-induced bolus pemphigoid, I think, is probably one of the reasons we are seeing more of this. So even though it's something we don't see every day, it's probably something that's going to be walking through our doors more and more. When you see it in your practice, how are the patients presenting? So patients present with bolus pemphigoid in a couple of different ways. Of course, the classic is tense bulla, um, but really they begin with an, a pruritic urticarial phase first. And if you're able to catch them at that phase and, and treat them, you can save them sometimes years of itch before they actually develop the bulla. So recognizing that, reviewing their medication list to see if there's something you can eliminate that may actually also stop the disease, really important. Excellent. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us today that you feel like is just top and running in the literature currently? One of the things that I would mention um, in this year's literature, kind of getting to what Jocelyn was talking about with those prior authorizations and overwhelming people with paperwork, was a recent article on urticaria. It was an update on management um, and a consensus statement by numerous bodies, medical bodies throughout the world. Um, but it actually showed, gave good evidence that omalizumab or Zolaire should really be second line after antihistamines. So that paper is going to be really helpful in getting authorization uh, for for this expensive medication, but really helpful medication for urticaria. That's excellent. Thank you. Well, it's been great to talk to you both today. I'm really happy to have you here. 
I'm sure all of our viewers will be very excited for the rapid fire amount of information that we've packed into this past mm, seven and a half minutes or so. So thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you. With Dermcast TV, I'm Amber. Thanks for watching.